You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 8. We're going to read together verses 39 through 47. They, verse 39, that is the Jews who had believed in him, answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to Your Word, and it is our desire that You would be glorified through our study of Your Word. We pray that You would open our eyes and our hearts, that we may behold in Your Word wonderful things, that You would bring to us light. We thank You that it is by Your Word that we are able to make sense of our lives, our hearts, our affections, and all things that are true. And we ask that now you would reveal to us the truth in Scripture, in the pages and the words of our Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Have you ever noticed how oftentimes children look a lot like their parents? Have you noticed that? Now, maybe not so much with my family, but certainly you've seen kids where this is, where this is the case. The kid looks strikingly like their parents. Um, and it's not just a physical resemblance that we notice. Sometimes it's an uncanny uh, note, uh, an, an uncanny similarity in mannerisms and quirks and idiosyncrasies. Have you ever seen a kid that laughs like their father? Or a boy that walks like their father? Or a daughter that moves and, and dances or walks just like their mother? It's just not the physical features. Sometimes there's the, there can be this uncanny resemblance even in the idiosyncrasies and the little quirks and personality traits from father to, to son or from daughter to, to, uh, d- from mother to daughter. So again, I'm never, was never good with the theory of relativity. So when it gets into relatives, I get all confused. The, the uncanny resemblance is there, not just physically, but also with the quirks and the idiosyncrasies. It's true spiritually as well. In fact, what is, what we notice to be true in the physical realm, in the spiritual realm is infallibly true. That we bear the marks and the characteristics of our spiritual father. What is true of us spiritually, our spiritual paternity, works itself out in our lifestyle, in our conduct, in the words that we say, and in the affections that we have. Just as there is a similarity between the, uh, between the parent and the child in the physical realm, so there is a similarity between our spiritual father or the spiritual father and the children that they are, are the offspring, that as, as offspring. That is something that is remarkably true, something the Scripture says is infallibly true. We saw that in 1 John chapter 3. 
Did you catch that? The one who practices lawlessness, when we read it, the one who is continually practicing lawlessness is of the devil. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. The one who is born of God has certain characteristics and similarities with his heavenly father. The one who belongs to the devil bears out his spiritual paternity and the fact that he belongs to the devil by how he lives and how he conducts himself. That is just, an, it's like a law of the universe that we are all subject to. In fact, John says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Are obvious. It's manifest. Do you want to know who somebody's spiritual father is? Look at the way they live. That will tell you. doesn't matter if you prayed the prayer as a four-year-old. What does your lifestyle look like? Where are your affections? What do you love? What do you cherish? What do you think about? What do you say? How do you live your life? Where have you set your affections? That determines, that will tell you whether somebody has been born again and is a child of God or whether that person is a child of the devil. Now, Jesus is addressing a group of people who were claiming to be children of God. They thought that they were children of God, and Jesus told them, you're still slaves of sin. You are slaves of sin, and you need to be set free. And we saw last week, Jesus identified three things that were true of them that was evidence of their need to be set free from their sin. Their attitude toward Him, they hated Him. Their attitude towards the truth, they rejected the truth and had no place for the truth. And then they were doing the deeds of their father, the devil, in seeking to try and kill Jesus. Those three things, Jesus said, were evidence the fact that they still needed to be set free from sin, that their father was the devil. Now those who were actually children of the devil, who thought they were children of God, and then told by the Son of God that they were not sons of God, they didn't take to that very well at all. They resented that. They hated Jesus for telling them that. But listen, it was gracious of Jesus to tell them the truth, wasn't it? Isn't that a gracious thing? I mean, if you're a child of God, a child of the devil, don't you want to know about it? You should want to know about it. They should have wanted to know about it. It was very gracious for Jesus to tell them the truth and to say to them, you still have a spiritual issue that needs to be dealt with. You must repent and you must be born again. That was what they needed. That was not what they wanted to hear, but that was what they needed. So we left off in verse 40, actually verse 41. We got partway into verse 41 where Jesus said, you're doing the deeds of your father. And Jesus, of course, is speaking of the devil. Now I want you to look at their response to this. They make another claim, and then we're going to look at how Jesus addresses their claim. Verse 41, they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now I want you to hold on there for just a second. That's a very interesting thing that they say. We were not born of fornication. What do they mean by that? We were not born of fornication. Some people suggested that there's sort of an allusion there to Jesus' virgin birth. Some people suggested that there's something else going on there. We're going to look at it. I want you to be able to notice, though, we'll look at the context. I want you to notice the progression of their statements. In verse 33, they said, we are descendants of Abraham. That was their claim. Now, they're talking physical lineage, physical ancestry there. That was what they had in mind. They thought that their physical descent from Abraham gained them or earned them some favor or some right, some standing with God. They trusted in that. We are Abraham's offspring. We have Abraham's blood in our veins. That gets us something with God. Because Abraham was favored by God. Abraham is the father of our nation. Since we physically come from him, that earns us something. And Jesus pointed out, it doesn't earn you anything. It doesn't earn you anything because Ishmael was a son of Abraham and he got nothing. He was still a slave. And you're just like slaves in Abraham's home. You're not like Isaac. You're like the sons of Ishmael. You are of your father or you're just like and do the deeds of your father. That was Jesus' insinuation. He's talking about something spiritual now. And they, they clue into this. Oh, he's not talking about Abraham. He's not talking about physical bondage. He's talking about something spiritual. So then they pull out a spiritual card. 
Abraham is our father. Now they're talking spiritually. They're not talking about just physical descent. They're actually saying not only do we have Abraham's blood in our veins, we have Abraham's faith in our heart. We are spiritual kin with Abraham. So we have the same faith Abraham had, and we have thus the same standing before God that Abraham had. And Jesus answered that, if you had Abraham's faith in your heart, you would do the deeds of Abraham. But you don't do the deeds of Abraham. And Jesus said when Abraham saw the messengers of God, he didn't try and kill them. That was Jesus, by the way. Remember from last week? When when Jesus came to Abraham, did Abraham try and kill him? No, Abraham didn't try and kill him. Abraham obeyed and received the truth. And Jesus said, you're doing the deeds of your father. Now they understand he is not talking about Abraham when he says father. He's not talking about God when he says father. He is talking about a deeper and darker spiritual reality. They're starting to get it. So now they pull out the ultimate trump card and they claim to be the spiritual children of God. Verse 39, or verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now what are they referring to when they say we were not born of fornication? There are a couple of different possibilities, and this is really interesting because I've sort of, well, I'm going to tell you I've changed my mind a little bit on what I think they're driving at here. There's a couple of different possibilities. First, it's possible that what they're referring to is Jesus' statement about sons and slaves. In other words, they're saying, look, we are not like Ishmael and his descendants. Ishmael and his descendants are illegitimate children. They're rightfully slaves. Not us. We were not born of fornication. We are the legitimate heirs of Abraham. We are the true children of God through Abraham and then through Isaac and then through Jacob and through the line of the covenant. That is the standing that we have. We're not like Ishmael, outsiders, slaves. It could be that they are referring to that. Because Jesus has alluded to that in the context and talked about the difference between slaves and sons. The only reason I hesitate to adopt that position or that idea of what Jesus is talking about there is because I don't think that they would have referred to Abraham's relationship with Hagar as fornication. They would not have attributed that to Abraham. They would have looked at that relationship that existed there for a period of time as being a legitimate wife and for a legitimate purpose. They wouldn't have called that fornication, I don't think. There's a second possibility. It's possible that they were alluding here to Jesus' virgin birth and the scandal that surrounded it. So the conversation would sound something like this. All right, you're talking about paternity, fathers, Abraham, etc. We know who our father is. And we can point to our father. We know we were not born out of wedlock. We were not born as a result of fornication. The implication or the suggestion being that they are sort of in a snide way taking a shot at Jesus and the scandal or the question that surrounded Mary and Joseph and the virgin birth. And they are assuming what everybody assumed. Nobody thought that she was born of a virgin, that he was born of a virgin except for Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Everybody else would have assumed that Everything happened naturally that Mary had been unfaithful in some way and she had conceived a child in fornication and that would have been Jesus. So it's possible that they are alluding to that. I think that's the position that John MacArthur takes. That's the position that I thought as I've read through this passage over the years that that's what they were doing. In fact, when I introduced chapter 8, I said to you that's what's going on here. That might be the case, but I think there might also be something deeper and more profound that they're referring to. And this would be the third option. And here it is that they are denying that they are spiritual apostates. Now, to catch this, you need to think like a Jew would think. And you have to have some Old Testament background. So let me set up a little bit of Old Testament background, use some Jewish language, and I think you'll see what what I'm referring to. God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel, and it it was a quid pro quo covenant of obedience. You do this, and I will bless you. You don't do this, and I won't bless you. If you do this, I'll curse you. If you don't do this, I won't curse you. It was It was a you do this, and I'll do this covenant. They broke the covenant. 
They disobeyed God. And all the way through the Old Testament, whenever the children of Israel were unfaithful to God, whenever they followed after other gods, whenever they worshipped other gods, whenever they were faithful to other gods, whenever they neglected or abandoned Him, God likened it to harlotry or adultery. In fact, He uses that term all the way through the prophets. You can read through the prophets and you see it over and over again. You, O nation of Israel, which I have purchased, which I have redeemed, which I have loved from before time, you as a nation have been unfaithful to me. You are like a spiritual harlot. You are like a spiritual fornicator. You are unfaithful in every way. And in all the love that God showered upon the nation of Israel, they were unfaithful in that. And the ultimate picture of that is seen in the prophet Hosea, which is what the whole prophet of Hosea is about, right? Hosea married an unfaithful woman and she ran off. And God says, this is just what the nation of Israel has done to me. They have practiced spiritual harlotry among with all the other gods out under the heavens. Now consider, for instance, Hosea chapter 2, verse 4. Also, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are the children of harlotry. Listen to Jeremiah 2. For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. For on every high hill and on every green tree you have lain down as a harlot. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 3, God says, if, I, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers, yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been violated? By roads have you not, by which roads have you not sat like the Arab in the desert? And you have polluted a land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no spring rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. That's Jeremiah chapter 3. You see the illusion there? You have committed spiritual harlotry, spiritual fornication. And the children of those idol worshippers were children of fornication or spiritual adultery. So now what has Jesus done in John chapter 8? Go back to John chapter 8. What has He done? He has said, God is not your father. Abraham is not your father. You are still children of the devil. That's what He has alluded to. They understand He's speaking spiritually, and now they are completely re- uh, refusing His His claim. We were not born of spiritual fornication. We are legitimate children of God. We have not been unfaithful to the covenant. We have not been unrighteous. We have not worshipped other gods. We have not been unfaithful to what God has said. We have kept the Ten Commandments. We are Jews. We are faithful. We have not been unfaithful. God is our Father. And Jesus has said, the devil is your Father. You have an illegitimate Father. And yet you are in the nation of Israel, in God's household as it were, but you are illegitimate children sired by a different God. A false God by the devil himself. And they've objected to that. We were not born of fornication. Now do you see the illusion? That's what I think that they are getting at. That's what I think Jesus is driving at. And that's what they're, that's what they're denying. We were not born illegitimate, unfaithful children. We have been faithful to God. We have one Father, God. Now what they've done is they've taken an Old Testament concept, and that is that God was the Father of the nation of Israel, and they have applied it to themselves personally. Now was it true that they were children of God? No, they weren't. And no Jew would have ever claimed to be a child of God in the sense that you and I are children of God in an adopted sense. But it was true that God was the Father of the nation of Israel. And he calls himself that in Exodus 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, Israel is my firstborn. In Jeremiah 31, 9, 
God says, for I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. God calls himself the father of that nation. So what they've done is taken something that's true on a national scale and they said, because this is true on a national scale, it's true of me. Because God is the father of our nation, therefore, I am a child of God. Just by virtue of the fact that I belong to this nation. I want you to notice the self-deception that is evident in their words. Do you notice that? We were not born of fornication. We have one father, and it is God. These Jews honestly believed that they were the children of God. And they were the children of the devil. And this is something that is chilling to realize. How it is possible for somebody to believe with all of their heart and with all of their mind that they are a child of God, and yet to remain a child of the devil. God warns us that that can be true. These Jews thought of themselves as children of God, and they were children of the devil. The capacity of the human heart to deceive itself is almost limitless. Because a man can think with all of his heart and his mind that he has turned from his sin, that he has trusted in Christ for salvation, that he has been born again, and that he has spiritual life, and he can be just as dead and corrupt and vile as the day he was born. And yet believe that as he sits or she sits under the preaching of the word week after week and it has no effect upon their lives, he he or she can say to themselves, I'm fine. I'm fine because I'm a child of God. The capacity of the human heart to deceive itself is almost limitless. You and I should never look to our hearts for assurance of our salvation. Never. You know why? Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The only thing that we can look at for assurance of our salvation is is to answer this question. Is there evidence in my life that I am actually regenerate? Is there evidence in my life? Do I bear in my life the marks of regeneration? Is there proof in how I live and in my affections and in what I love that salvation has come to this individual? That's the only way that you and I can know whether or not we are saved. We can't, we can't look to some event and say, well, I was baptized, or I went forward, or I signed the card, or I got saved at this point, or I did this thing, or I partook of communion, or I had a great spiritual experience. We can't look to any of those things because Satan can counterfeit all of those things. But the one thing he cannot counterfeit is true, genuine spiritual fruit in the life of a true believer. We can't look to our hearts. We can only look to our life and say, is there evidence? Is there real evidence of my regeneration? And that's why Scripture encourages us to examine ourselves to see if we actually we are in the faith. Because it's possible for us, like these Jews, to think that we are and to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are and then to plow on with life. It's amazing to me how sometimes somebody, and I've known him throughout my life, people who can hear the Word preached and the Word read and yet remain absolutely deaf and blind to the warnings of Scripture, thinking they're spiritually okay when in fact they are not. It is a sad, it is tragic. It's not just sad, it's tragic. Now you say, well, what then are the evidences of my salvation? What are the things that I should look for? I'm glad you asked, because there are two things that are mentioned right here in the text. Look down at verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. There are two evidences or two fruits of genuine regeneration there. The first one is that somebody, if they are, if God is their father, they will love Christ. And second, if God is their father, they will hear and understand what Jesus has said. There will be two things, a love for Christ and second, an understanding of spiritual truth. Those are the two things that he identifies. Look at verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me. Now that's a conditional statement. And Jesus, by using a conditional statement, 
is insinuating, was actually stating, that what they are claiming is not true. He says, if it were true that God were your father, then this would be the case. But this isn't the case. And therefore, God is not your father. If God were your true father, and not another, if God were your true father, then you would love me. For I have come forth from God, and I have proceeded from God, and I didn't come on my own initiative, but He sent me, and I have come. Look at the end of verse 42. That's the language of being sent that Jesus is using. I proceeded forth from God. I came from God. He sent me. I didn't come of my own initiative. And by that, Jesus is saying, I'm not a renegade deity. I didn't come in here on my own doing my own thing. I came here to represent the Father. He sent me. I speak His words. I do His works. I represent His nature and character. And so, if God were your Father, you would love me. Now, why would they love the Son? They would love the Son because the Son is the exact representation of the Father's Word, the Father's will, and the Father's glory. And if God were their Father, they would love the One who so accurately and perfectly represented the nature of the Father. But their hatred for Jesus was evidence that they did not, in fact, love God. Now here is the great principle of this verse. And I want you to catch this. Love to Christ. Love to Christ is the infallible mark of all true children of God. Love to Christ is the infallible mark of all true children of God. If one does not love Christ, he is not a child of God. I don't care what the profession is. It doesn't matter what they else they might claim. If there is no love for Jesus Christ, the Son, there is no connection whatsoever to God as their spiritual Father. Love toward Christ is the infallible mark of all true children of God. There must be a love for Jesus. Now, does that mean that I love Him perfectly? It doesn't. Does it mean that I love Him fully? It doesn't. Does it mean that I am not aware of any lack in my love for Christ? It doesn't mean that. The verse doesn't say, the one who loves me perfectly is related to my Father. It doesn't say that. Is there a love for Jesus? Is there a love for Christ? If there is no love for Christ and what He has done, and I can guarantee you this, there has been no regeneration. Because the one who begins loving darkness and hating the light, when he is regenerated, he loves the light and he hates the darkness because the heart has been changed. That's what regeneration do does. It gives us new affections. It gives us new desires, new loves and new hatreds. We begin to love the things that God loves and hate the things that He hates. We begin to love the Son because it is the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts that makes us to love Jesus. Because the Spirit of God has made Christ irresistible to us. And He has drawn us to Him. And we see in Christ all of the things that we ought to love. And when our heart is set free from our sin, and our heart is set free from iniquity, and we're no longer under the bondage of darkness, then our heart is set free to love the things that we should love, which we are unable to do before regeneration. Regeneration frees us to love the Son. And the one who has been born of God loves the Son. Listen to Jesus in John 3, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. In John 5, Jesus said, The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. The Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Listen so that all will honor the Son as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. John 15, Jesus said, He who hates Me hates My Father also. 
If I had done among them the works which no one else did, they would have not, they would have no sin. But now that they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. John 16, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Why are you to be accursed if you don't love the Lord? Is it possible to be a Christian and not love Christ? It's not possible, is it? Why? Because a Christian sees in Christ everything that he has and everything that he desires. His eyes have been opened to behold the beauty of the irresistible Christ. His eyes have been opened to behold the beauty of one who paid for him with his own blood, who died on a cross and atoned for him and rose again, and by that resurrection secured his resurrection. He sees in Christ a sympathetic high priest who constantly intercedes before the throne of God, who loves his children, cares for his children, and has by his own work and his own blood vouchsafed their salvation, their sanctification, and their security, and their eternal glory, and all of the spiritual blessings in heaven. Their redemption, their regeneration, their election, all of that has been given to them and vouchsafed to them by the Son. Who else would you love as a believer? Now, does it mean again that you must love Him perfectly, without fail? Nobody can do that. We can't do that on this side of eternity. We love Him increasingly, but not perfectly. But listen, do you love Him? That's the question. Do you love Him? Is there evidence in your life that you love Him? What does that love look like? Is love toward Christ a a warm, schmarmy, emotional, um, Jesus hold me, be my boyfriend type of a love? It's not an erotic love, is it? It's not even just a brotherly love. And it's not the boyfriend-girlfriend love. Oh, oh, Jesus, I want you to... There's a song, I want you to hold me. Hold me, hold me, Jesus. Put your arms around me, hold me. I hate songs like that. It's not an amorous type love. You know what it is? It is an affection that finds its satisfaction in Him because of what He did. It's not a boyfriend-girlfriend love. It's not an erotic love. It's not even just a brotherly, hey, bump knuckles type of love. It is, He is the seat and center of my affection And I love Him because of what He did for me. And I increasingly love Him. As I grow in grace, I learn more and more of what He means to me. And my love and my affections increase and they grow over the course of time. How can you tell if somebody loves Christ? I'll let Jesus answer the question. John 14, 15, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Here's what love looks like. It's obedience. Love is obedience. John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. John 15, verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus loved the Father, and he obeyed the Father. That's the parallel. If you love Jesus, you'll obey Jesus. John 15, 14, You are my friends if you do what I command you. What what does love toward Christ look like? It is obedience. The person who says, I love Jesus, but I'm not interested in obeying his word, or doing what He commands me, is a liar. He does not love Jesus. He has deceived Himself. What does love look like? It is obedience to Him. Because we see in Christ that which is precious to us, and we say, how could I sin against so great a Savior? How could I not love with my entire life one who has given me so much and blessed me so much, as undeserving as I am? And that love grows and grows, and it desires to obey Christ, the one who does not obey Him, does not love Him. The one who does not love Him has not been born again by the Spirit of God. 
you could test this love in other ways. You could you could phrase it this way. Not just do I love Jesus and obey him and keep by keeping his commandments, but you could phrase it this way. Do I love what he loves? That's another good test. Do I love the things that Christ loves? And do I hate the things that he hates? Do I hate sin and wickedness and things which are offensive to him? And do I love those things that please him and bring him joy and bring him glory? Do I love the things that he loves? Or do I find myself loving the things that he hates and delighting in those things and not necessarily having any love or affection for the things that he loves? In fact, do I find myself hating the things that I know Christ loves? Like his church and his word and his righteousness and his glory and his preeminence and all of those things that characterize him. Do I find myself loving those things or hating those things? That's a good test. Because if I love him, then I'm going to love the things that he loves. And if I hate the things that he hates, that is evidence that I love the things that he loves. Do I love Christ like that? Listen, that type of love is the product of the Holy Spirit and the regenerating work that he has done in our hearts. This is a, this is a Trinitarian concept, so catch this. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit loves the Son. If you have been adopted and born again by the Father, and if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you will love the Son as well. If you do not love the Son, it is evidence that you do not belong to the Father, and it is evidence that the Spirit of God does not dwell in you. Now, does this mean that our love for Christ and our love for the things of God is always at a white, hot, fever pitch for our whole lives? That we are all, we wake up every morning, our feet are ready to hit the ground, and we are burning with passionate affection for Christ, and that, that never wanes. Is that what I'm talking about? That's not what I'm talking about. There are times in life when in seasons of life, sin, circumstances, people, relationships, things, disease, sickness, whatever it is, gets you down. All of those things affect us, and we find that our love for Christ waxes and wanes. We find it strangely cooled at some seasons of life, strangely warmed at other seasons of life. We do go through valleys, ups and downs, and different seasons of life. But the question is not whether it waxes or wanes or how perfect it is, but is it there? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? And do you love the things that He loves? And do you hate the things that he hates? And is your love for him evidenced by your obedience to him? If you do not obey him, if you are not interested in obeying him, if you are apathetic towards your obedience to him, mark this well, you are not born again. That's it. You are not born again. You have not been saved. God is not your father. And if you think he is, you have deceived yourself. If the evidence of your love is not obedience to him and the affections of your heart are not set on him. We love Him imperfectly, but we love Him increasingly, and that is the way we must continue to love Him. And look at verse 43. This is the second mark. Not only is there a love for Christ in the hearts of those who have God as their Father, but there is an ability to hear and understand what He says. And our time is virtually up, so I'm just going to state to you what verse 43 means, but here's the good news. Jesus says the same thing down in verses 46 and 47, so we will have the opportunity to return to what He is saying in verse 43. But here it is. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. The one who has been born of God and has God as their father loves Christ and he hears and understands what Jesus has said. These men did not hear and they did not understand. So look what he says. Why is it that you do not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot, inability, you cannot, you are unable to hear my word. Now understanding verse 43, the key to it, is understanding that Jesus is talking about two different things when he says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? That's one thing. It's because you cannot hear my word. That's something entirely different. Now, these two concepts are different. Let me explain how. When Jesus says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? 
he is using a word that refers to the manner of teaching. Why is it, it would be like this, why is it that do you not understand the analogies that I use, the metaphors that I use, the illustrations that I use, the things that I say, my parables and the things when I talk about truth, you, you don't even get my manner of teaching. They didn't even understand the illusions and the analogies and the metaphors and all of that stuff. They didn't catch what it was that he was saying. It is because they could not hear, and this word refers to the content of his teaching, you could not hear my word. That's the doctrine or the content, the meaning. They could not understand how he was teaching, the way he taught. It was all a mystery to them because their hearts were so filled with bias against the truth that he was proclaiming. Their hearts were were turned against the truth, and because of that, when he would use an analogy, right over their head. They didn't get it at all. You see it all the way through the Gospel of John. Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus, enter a second time into the mother's womb. Is that how that works? How does that work exactly? Right? Then in John chapter 6, when Jesus speaks of being the living bread that came down out of heaven, they think he's talking about breakfast. They'll give us this bread. Give us some manna then. They they didn't get it. When he talks about being the living water, didn't get it. Light of the world, didn't get it. He talks about, I'll set you free. They think he's talking about physical bondage. And when Jesus refers to their father, they think he's talking about Abraham or God. They didn't get any of the analogies, any of the illusions, any of the manner of his teaching. Why? Their heart was so hardened against the truth that they could not hear his doctrine. They did not understand what he was teaching because their heart was biased against the doctrine of his teaching and what he was trying to communicate. When Jesus says, you cannot hear my word, he is describing not a physical inability. The problem was not that they were deaf. The problem was not that they were hard of hearing and they needed to clean the wax out of their ears. The problem was they had a moral inability to hear his truth. Their heart was hardened and they refused to listen And because they were unwilling to see and unwilling to listen, they were therefore unable to see and unable to listen. Their will and their heart was so bent against the truth, so resistant to it, that they were morally unable to do even something as simple as hearing and understanding what he says. What is necessary for somebody who is biased against the truth to be able to hear and understand the truth? They must be born again. They must be born again. Why were they unable to hear? Because they were slaves of sin. It's inability. It's depravity. The one who is a slave of sin cannot understand spiritual truth. They cannot respond to spiritual truth. They cannot embrace spiritual truth because they are in bondage to their iniquity. They had to be set free. And here's the proof of them being set free. They would understand what he is saying. They would get it and they would respond to it. So what are the two evidences that one has God as their father? They love Christ, and they hear and they understand Christ, and they receive his teaching. Now, Jesus has already said to them, you're trying to kill me, and you have no place for my word. The believer, on the other hand, does not try and kill Christ. He loves Christ, and he has not only a place for his word, but he welcomes it and he receives it with a willing, humble heart, ready to obey because his affections have been changed, and he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. These men were unable to do that, And they were unable to even understand what he meant by father. And so in verse 44, he removes all the confusion. You're of your father, the devil. No more analogies, no more illusions. Right out there plain for them to see. And we will save our our looking at verse 44 for next time. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful that you can take your word and make us to understand and enlighten it to us. We thank you for the Spirit of God which resides in us, which gives us both illumination and understanding but also gives us a love for your Son. We do love Him. We thank you that 
we are not counted as righteous before you on the basis of that love, but that it is the fruit of our salvation and not not that which gains or earns us salvation. Thank you that you have given us not only salvation and redemption, but also a love for Christ. May it increase and grow and flourish as we grow in our faith and in sanctification. Thank you for such a precious Savior who has done so much to redeem a people for himself. And may he receive from us affection and love and praise and the adoration of our hearts, which you, our God, so so thoroughly and so infinitely deserve. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.